everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay. Our dryer crapped out on us the other day, which was fun. I realize as I say that it sounds ironic, but it actually was kind of fun. I mean, not the part where you lose use of a major appliance and have to try to figure out a way to replace it, both financially and physically, during the pandemic, but the part where you go out into the garage and build elaborate forts out of ladders and folding chairs and broomsticks so that you can drape wet clothes over them, that was actually pretty fun. And fortunately, Lisa is very handy and was able to find a replacement part and fix our dryer the very next day. Which was a relief, but also a little bit disappointing. Not that I thought that fort building for laundry drying purposes wouldn't have gotten old, because I'm sure it would have, but I was kind of looking forward to a week of wearing bathing suits and old Halloween costumes. Let me rephrase that. I was looking forward to having an excuse for a week for the fact that I'm wearing bathing suits and old Halloween costumes. Anyway, let's talk about a comic book. Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis is submitted by Osvaldo Ayola. Dollar bills rejected. Nighthawk is corrected. Supervillain defenders ought not to be respected. Stephen Strange's be knighted. The Hulk gets real excited. Now he's pissed, wants synopsis, so Hub will list recited. Delighted! Thanks, Osvaldo. And yes, I am indeed delighted. Also, just a note, we are starting to get pretty low on synopsis rhymes in the old rhyme coffer, so if you feel like sending one in, yours has a pretty good chance of going up pretty soon. Thanks. Defenders, number 73. June, 1979. Of Wizards, Shadows, and Kings. Written by Ed Hannigan, drotted by Herb Trimpe, inked by Mike Esposito, colored by Ben Sean, lettered by Clem Robbins, and edited by Al Milgram and Mary Jo Duffy. Defensive lineup The Incredible Hulk, Nighthawk, Valkyrie, Hellcat, Clea, Doctor Strange, and Zahooks, or Shush, or Shusha. His name's X-H-O-O-H-X, so probably Shusha. Previously in the Defenders. Soon after Valkyrie enrolled in classes at Empire State University, the sorcerously Scandinavian swordslinger ran afoul of a hyper-violent campus vigilante named Lunatic with a K. The misanthropic miscreant with a misspelled moniker had earned Val's animosity by murdering and brutalizing students for committing minor infractions against the law. One evening, while Doctor Strange and the Hulk were off on an extra-dimensional adventure, Valkyrie, Hellcat, and Nighthawk finally managed to capture Lunatic with a K. Hooray! But were surprised to find that the manic murder of misdemeanor malefactors was not one Jerkhole, but four Jerkholes, one of whom was Valkyrie's creepy-ass drama professor, Harrison Turk. 
Professor Turk took the defenders to his lecture hall and over the course of eleven pages of exposition explained to them that his backstory was very simple. Lunatic with a K was from another dimension where he used to be a wizard slash god slash king named Utterzen Tirk. But then a space werewolf barbarian took all his stuff and now he's a bunch of guys. See? Simple. Turk went on to say that he figured that if the defenders could help him round up the rest of hims, which were probably back in his home dimension, and jam them all back into a single dude, then he'd probably be less murdery and could go back to ruling his realm. The defenders agreed that that sounded like a good plan. Possibly because the professorial aspect of Turk had mesmeric abilities, but also possibly because Nighthawk is pretty stupid and had declared himself the team leader. The gang headed over to Doctor Strange's Sanctum Sanctimonious to see if the condescending conjurer could zap them over to Lunatic with a K's home. But, since the Sorcerer Supreme was off on his sojourn, Clea, Steve's disciple-slash-girlfriend, a not-at-all-creepy combination, agreed to fill in and accompany our heroes on their quest. The magnanimous mage teleported herself, the defenders, and the lunatic with a case to a place called Tunnel World, where they met a bunch of guys who were kind of like hobbits and kind of like munchkins, but technically legally dissimilar to both. A bunch of assholes named Nilfim showed up riding giant lizard birds and attacked our heroes. During the battle, the lunatic with a case turned on the defenders and tried to kidnap Hellcat, but fortunately, Stephen the Hulk showed up to bludgeon the bird-riding baddies and help rescue Patsy. Hooray! When the dust from this differently dimensioned Donnybrook settled, Steve explained that the now-captured Nilfim were the missing fragments of Arisen Turk, and that they and the lunatics with a K had been acting as pawns in service to a powerful, unnameable enemy who was super-duper evil. With the aid of the non-hobbits, the defenders rounded up all the various Arisen Turks and tied them up. Then they hopped on the giant lizard birds and took their prisoners off on a quest to find Steve's buddy, a secretive wizard named... Shusha? Probably Shusha. The journey was a dangerous one, and along the way they fought some lightning monsters, space bees, and an angry sphere festooned with vacuum cleaner accessories, all of whom were apparently in the thrall of our imperiled protagonist's unutterable opposition. Eventually our heroes found a camping spot not far from Shusha's hideout, and hunkered down for the night. But little did they realize that as they huddled around their fire, their every action was being watched from the bushes by an improbable number of eyeballs. Gadzooks! Will our harried heroes ever encounter their enigmatic enemy? Just who is this mysterious Shusha we've heard so much about? And once all the disparate jerkhole lunatic with a case and jerkhole nilfim are combined into a single person, what manner of being will result? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so maybe eventually, but not in this issue. An extra appendaged furry goofball with a grip of eyeballs and a fancy hat. And a jerk hole. Steve crouches down under an intimidating wall of expositional text that goes over a lot of what I just covered in the previously in the Defenders bit and explains to his non-teammates that Shusha's dope-ass Frank Lloyd Wright-looking house that we can see in the distance is a bit farther away than he had thought. Turns out Steve thought the house was near because it's so darn big. I guess between his time in medical school and his training with the Ancient One, the idea of forced perspective never came up. You'd think he might have picked that up from the highlights magazines that he had in the waiting room when he was a doctor, but he probably just looked for the hidden objects on that one page and then called it a day. I get it. 
The perspective perplexed prestidigitator reiterates that they are all in grave danger from Voldemort or whoever, and off they go to see the wizard. Before they've gone very long, Clea sees that they are being pursued by a large group of oddly shaped silhouettes. Steve reckons that they're probably minions of the unmentionable one. Hmm. I think the only other time I've heard that word is that old people sometimes refer to underpants as their unmentionables. Now I'm just picturing Steve's nameless nemesis as a sentient pile of old underpants. I mean, we haven't seen them yet, so who knows? As the underpants monster's army grows closer, our heroes see that it is made up of three-legged furry creatures who are covered with eyeballs. So, presumably these were the creatures who were watching the defenders from the bushes last night. I wonder why they didn't attack then. Maybe while they were camping, they made some s'mores, and one of them got marshmallows stuck in his fur, and then it was a whole thing. Yeah, that's probably it. Poor guys. When the inexpert s'mores makers are nearly upon them, Val and Aragorn take to the air with the prisoners so that the enemy can't reclaim them. The creatures shout, Aru! Aru! as they attack, which is adorable. Nighthawk bops one of them on the noodle, which appears to be a weak spot for them, and Patsy follows suit but the party seems overwhelmed by their opposition's strength as well as their number. Clea asks Steve if they can use some spells on their attackers, but Steve is worried about attracting the underpants monster's attention, so no dice. Things are looking bad for the good guys when the Hulk remembers that he's the Hulk, and he smashes the shit out of the defender's Aru enunciating adversaries. Hooray! Once the Aru monsters have been disposed of, our heroes proceed up the mountain to the prodigious prairie-style palace of Shusha. When they arrive, Steve is surprised to note that there are no guards outside to greet them. Indeed, the ultra-modern edifice seems abandoned. For a minute, they aren't sure how to get in, as the door is locked, but then Kyle flies in through an open window and cracks the enormous door to let them in. Nice to see those years of thrill-seeking super-burglary paid off. Once they get inside, the defenders find that there is another palace within the outer shell, complete with its own radiating source of light and heat, which Steve explains is the mystical orb of Omenon that Shusha controls. Neat! After walking through some gardens, the gang walks up to a big old alien-looking castle that has a bunch of asymmetric towers. They're greeted warmly by Shusha, who it turns out is the same race as those three-legged furry guys who attacked them earlier. He talks like if Yoda was still figuring out the syntax rules of his dialect, and also mixing the word Aru in every now and again. It's equal parts fun and kind of frustrating. Shusha informs his guest that the forces that attacked them on the way there were his former pals who had recently fallen under the insidious sway of the old-timey underpants monster. Steve asks if Shusha will help him mystically smush all of the lunatic with a K's and Nilfims back into a single dude. Shush is like, A problem that is not! Aru! Aru! After holding a cool-looking trinocular up to three of his eyeballs and poking out the window to make sure no one is coming, Shusha takes the defenders and their captives into his magic-doing room. The Arisen Turk fragments seem pretty keen on the idea of Voltroning, which you might think would be a red flag for Steve and Shush, but nah, they're just full steam ahead with this project. Shusha adjusts his fancy hat and does some impressive-looking mystical nonsense. A few seconds later, where there had been an octet of antagonistic assholes, there was now just the one. Arisen Turk had once again, well, arisen. 
The reassembled reprobate now sported a fancy purple and blue outfit and a neatly trimmed Van Dyke. Steve goes to approach Tyrk, but Shusha senses that something was amiss and holds out a restraining arm and is like, It you must cheese! Fucked we are! Aroo! Turk blasts the shit out of Steve with a bolt of magic and is like, Fuck you! Now there's just one of me and I am super powerful! Unless you're hiding a space werewolf barbarian somewhere, you guys are hosed! Sadly, the Defenders are not hiding a space werewolf barbarian somewhere. Damn it. Turk casually slaps around the Hulk and Shusha, then climbs to the top of the highest tower in the castle and is like, I'm coming for you, anonymous underpants monster! Nobody uses others and Tarek as their pawn, or eight of their pawns, or whatever. The unnameable underpants evil sends a bunch of lightning monsters down at Tarek, but he blasts them out of the sky. The defenders all try to tackle Tarek because I guess Steve impressed on them that pissing off the underpants evil is no good for anybody. But the recently reunified Space Wizard bats away the Hulk, Nighthawk, and Hellcat like they were nothing. Valkyrie fares a bit better and is able to distract Tyrk momentarily by bonking him on the head with the hilt of her magic sword. This at least manages to piss the enraged Wizard King off enough that he gains his attention. From the corner of her eye, Val notices Steve and Shusha making some kind of magic hoop. The Aesir Amazon adroitly ascertains that the mismatched mages are laying a trap for Arisen Tyrk. She leads the puissant prick towards the magic circle. When Turk reaches the perimeter of the enchanted ring, Valkyrie summons all of her Asgardian might and shoves him through it. The spell instantly incapacitates the otherworldly asshole. Hooray! Shusha throws Turk into a magic dungeon or something, then sends our heroes home so that Steve can start to research how to defeat the anonymous underpants evil. When they arrive on Earth, Steve heads back to the Sanctum to start his research, leaving Clea and the rest of the Defenders at their Long Island headquarters to regroup and listen to some records. Kyle gets a phone call informing him that he's being subpoenaed as part of an investigation into his company's finances. The extra-dimensional excursion seems to have knocked some responsibility into the affluent Davian aficionado, because rather than flying into a rage and trying to punch someone, Kyle heads off to meet with his lawyers. Good for him. The Hulk isn't digging the Procol Harem album that Patsy put on, so he heads outside to sulk on a hillside, pondering as he does so why he craves both companionship and solitude. Hey, when you figure it out, buddy, let me know. Meanwhile, across town, two of Valkyrie's college buddies, the wealthy, garrulous cinephile Dollar Bill and his long-suffering friend Ledge, are going through the apartment of their former drama professor, Harrison Turk. Despite knowing that the absent academic was the villainous vigilante lunatic with a K, Dollar Bill continues to defend Turk's character to Ledge, who was hospitalized by lunatic with a K. Man, fuck you, Dollar Bill. The undergrads are rummaging through the fake professor's questionable art collection and leafing through his precious memory scrapbook when they're interrupted by the arrival of an uninvited visitor a masked man wearing a fancy pirate hat and brandishing a ray gun introduces himself as Fool Killer and announces that he is there to eradicate Professor Harrison Turk, a.k.a. Lunatic with a K. To be continued. Man, it's a good thing this guy isn't named Insensitive Jerkwad Killer or Dollar Bill would be in real trouble.
And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how are you doing? I am well. I'm enjoying, or I have been enjoying, the uh, the beautiful weather. It's uh, It's been great here. Yeah, it's been nice. Uh, my lilacs are starting to bloom, which is very nice. And my fucking irises are starting to bloom too, which is a fucking nightmare. Oh, you don't like irises? I love irises. I don't like my irises. I've talked about this on the show before, but they come in two varieties. There's either these little chirpy fucks with no gravitas that are like premature ejaculation irises. Oh, no. Start blooming as soon as they pop out of the ground and and just are nothing. Mm. And then there are their counterparts, which are these like giant monster irises, which are just kind of gross. I kind of think of them as like men's rights activist irises because they're just like pasty and fleshy and have big gross beards. Wow. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, they're a fucking nightmare. I hate these fucking irises. But my lilacs are blooming too, and they are lovely. I'm glad to hear it. I'm glad to hear it. Thank you. Uh, you want to talk about a comic book? Sure, let's do that. So, Corey, what did you think of this comic book? I don't know. A lot of stuff happened, and then again, not that much stuff happened. I know what you mean. There was also, for me at least, kind of a barrier of entry towards my investment in this comic book, I feel like, because it starts off with this big wall of text that is exposition of what happened in the last episode. Mm -hmm. So there are these, like, three big caption blocks of text that are taken up most of the first splash page. And then in the background, you can see Steve standing in front of this, like, really cool-looking wizard Frank Lloyd Wright house. Mm -hmm. And I just really didn't want to read all that text. Like, I like reading. Like, I like reading books and shit, but there's something about when you have that much of it on the intro page of a comic book mm -hmm. that is just... It makes me not want to read it. And so I was just like, oh, man, do I have to read these instructions? But can't I just go play with my toy? Yeah. I want to get to that Frank Lloyd Wright house back there. And so for my initial read through, I just kind of skimmed that and then went forward. And I didn't really get that into the story. And then when I reread it, I actually made myself go and read all of the words and I eventually ended up enjoying the story more a little bit that way, but it was tough to get myself to take that medicine. I had a different take on it, and perhaps this is a little bit of our personality difference where I am more of a read-the-instructions-first guy. But after reading those three blocks of exposition, I was a little bit angry because I was thinking to myself, why did I have to read the last two issues? They could have just put this in. <laughs> I know what you mean. That's because of Jim Shooter being the editor-in-chief in this point. One of his big mandates to writers was every issue could be somebody's first issue. And so you have to make every issue an entry point. And I feel like if this was your first issue, then I would just look at that and would just be like, oh, I don't want to. This isn't worth it. I, I feel like it would be much better to just allow people to pick up the story as they go along. Or maybe be like, oh, I maybe should have read some shit before then. But it's, it is kind of foreboding. Lots of words on one page. 
Yeah. And once you get into the story, there are also lots of words, but it doesn't bother me quite as much when it is in a quasi high fantasy context, Mm -hmm. because I think you kind of expect a little bit more flowery prose and exposition in that. And it kind of worked for me that way. I was surprised to the extent which I ended up enjoying this issue, even though there are a lot of problems with it. And I don't think it is ultimately satisfying. Zhush was a pretty interesting character. The Aruz, Aruz, Aruz were cute. And at first, the Yoda-like, but way more Yoda-like than necessary, speaking sentences all chopped up, was amusing and pretty quickly became annoying. Yeah, I think they hadn't quite gotten down the specific syntax rules for Shusha's talk. It, I agree. I had the same thing with it, where at first I was like, oh, this is actually really fun. And then it really just kept making you work for it because it wasn't set up in an intuitive way. Like, it's like proto-Yoda talk, where this, I mean, this definitely came before Empire Strikes Back came out. So there weren't the clearly established rules of how they were going to do it. And there are places where it doesn't quite work. I think I think the best example of that is, I think it's on page 15. Your coming a portent of great good is, but I that you not the power the enemy to combat have perceive. I had to reread that so many goddamn times because it doesn't quite work. Yeah, I think part of what was frustrating about it to me was my brain wanted more of a discernible pattern. Exactly. Yeah. It needs to be like, okay, so you put the object before the subject, something like that. And it wasn't quite doing that. Yep. And I I was also surprised, and I thought this was kind of a clever twist that they did, that the whole race of these three-limbed creatures five limbs just three of them are legs i thought they had i meant like three i thought they had three legs and three arms and three fingers i think they have three arms and two or three legs and two arms and three fingers because i have some specific thoughts about the character designs of these guys (laughs) me too i mean they are very goofy looking but specifically I was like, they look almost familiar. And then I realized if you put your hand, like try to set your hand up like it is a five-legged animal walking around, Mm -hmm. that's what they look like. Their head is your top knuckle there. Mm. And then so like two of the fingers are arms and then the other three are feet. And it made me kind of wonder if like the first draft of them was just like, So you just drew a bunch of hand turkeys running around. (laughs) Yeah. But once that kind of solidified in my mind, I started thinking of them as literally a race of knuckleheads, and that kind of made me like them a little bit better. Oh, that is funny. So the reason that I thought they had three arms, if you look, there's an instance on page uh, six in the bottom right when Patsy's doing her fancy dropkick on that critter. Mm Mm-hmm. He's got an arm in the middle and then two on the sides. Yeah, maybe they have three of each. Anytime they're shown that way, it's the inking makes it almost look... Because in the panel directly above that, 
it looks pretty clearly like he's got three legs and two arms. Mm -hmm. And that was the one that I think first made me think, oh, okay, so they're hands. Mm -hmm. And I think overall that is what the character design looks like. But you're right. And some of them it does look like they have six limbs. Some of them it looks like they have five. Yep. So it's funny, after you and I reading all these pages of this can't come to an accord that does speak to either issues with the character design or the way that it was uh, executed. Yeah, and there was some stuff that I had issues with with the execution artistically of this issue. There are a couple of changes in the creative team. Mike Esposito is now the anchor, and I think overall he does a pretty good job, but I think we run into some of the problems we did in the Jack Abel issue, where because you have so much exposition, the pictures are forced into the background, and you get some muddying happening with that. And also, because there is so much exposition, and we have a new letterer, it is Clem Robbins is the new letterer, it is literally difficult to read some of that text. Did you have that same issue in your copy? Because I wasn't sure if it was just maybe it's old, it's newsprint, they're starting to blur together. But uh, some of the words were, it, it took a while to decipher just because they kind of blocked up a little bit. Yeah, I thought it was just the copy that I had, but there there were definitely a few word bubbles where I almost couldn't make out um, what they were saying. Yeah, you had to kind of try to work it out from context, which in a high fantasy scenario where you have some made-up words is especially difficult. Clem Robbins is a really good letter, and as far as I know, is still working. If not, that's a relatively recent development. And he's actually published a couple of books on drawing human figures, which I think is pretty interesting. But this is really early on in his career, and I think he's developed a lot since then. Mm -hmm. So one other thought that I had when they introduced these creatures mm -hmm. that, that we were just talking about, on page three, it's the ones that have left uh, Zhuxia's kingdom because their minds got taken over by the one Steve can't say the name of. Mm -hmm. And and they're all charging, shouting, Aru, Aru! And there are these expositions. I think I see them in the distance. Yes, they're charging. They look huge. And my God, look at them. I didn't expect them to be human, but this? And in that particular panel, this is the first time you can clearly make out the third leg on the critter <laughs> charging towards you. And I was just like, is that? No. <laughs> That's not a giant airy penis, is it? Like, they can't draw that. And then the next page, I... But just because the exposition was like, my God, look at them. Yeah, there were a few moments of that where I'm not sure at this point what the writing style of these issues was. I don't know if they were working in the Marvel method at this time, in which the writer and artist would kind of loosely collaborate on the framework for a story then the artist would go draw the whole thing and then the writer would fill in the text where he wanted it or if it was the artist was working from a full script because there were a couple of moments where I kind of wondered which one of those it was and it made a difference in how I read things one of those was yeah what what you were talking about with you get the character's reaction to these weird creatures and it did make me wonder, is, oh, is that the writer reacting to what he sees drawn? Or is that the artist going, fuck, it says here, make a weird goddamn creature that everybody freaks out over. 
Okay, uh, guess I'll give it a big hairy dick. <laughs> I'm going with the latter. I mean, I don't think it was followed through all the way to that thought. That was just <laughs> me being a goof. But I, I, it did seem incongruous. Because they're, they're like, weird-looking, but not in a very frightening or scary, monstrous way. More of a, a goofy kind of way. Yeah, not the awe-inspiring, oh-my-gosh reaction. More of a, whoa, weird. And also the fact that they respond to being bludgeoned in the head by saying, rule? <laughs> <laughs> Makes them seem pretty non-threatening. I gotta say, I like these guys. I like these. I'm, I'm, I'm continuing to think of them as knuckleheads, and I like them. But if the artist is working from a full script, then I kind of gotta wonder how he feels about being given the task of a splash page that's just, the companions fall silent as they enter a garden of awesome alien beauty and gaze upon the shining towers of Shush's city. They seem to hear a chiming voice beyond ordinary hearing, saying, Be of calm mind, no evil shall threaten you here. And from the enchanted foliage choruses the song with a scintillating laugh of joy. Yeah. That is one hell of a fucking assignment. Just like, okay, so here I want you to draw the most beautiful thing you can imagine that no one has ever seen before. And it's got laughing shrubberies. Yeah, laughing alien shrubberies that are like nothing on Earth. If I got that, I mean, granted, I am not an artist, and maybe there are some people that would view that as like, what a wonderful opportunity, but I would definitely view that as like, fuck you for setting the bar that high. Yeah, I think that's why Herb Trimpe was just like, I'm just putting in some boxwoods. Totally. Okay, so a Barba Papa house and a hedge maze. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. That's what we get. <laughs> totally. Do you remember the Barba Papas? Is that the... I always get these mixed up with the, the like, blob creatures. The Barba Papas were the blob creatures, but not the ones from the Herculoids. They were a, a Swedish one where they're a multi-colored series of blobs that are a family, and they build a house by pouring cement over themselves and then changing their shape and getting out of it. It seems like I would remember something that weird... So, no, I guess I I didn't see that. Okay. It was a Swedish cartoon that was based on a series of children's books about environmentalism. Hmm. They were really, really weird. But when I was a kid, we had those books, and it was one of the few cartoons that was on PBS at the time. So they loom large in my mind, but I think a lot of people don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. Yeah, it's it's weird. I can't remember them because PBS was also what was available to me <laughs> on on the TV for many years. Yeah, and so anything that looked kind of like a cartoon, I was like, oh, okay. Doesn't seem like they're trying that hard to teach me something. I'll watch this. <laughs> yep. But yeah, I like that that was Herb Trimpe's reaction to that. It was like, okay, Barba Papa House and a Hedge Maze. <laughs> Done. Yep, I'll put a nice big sun on top. Which, that being said, it was nice looking, but a little bit disappointing, especially when you have this like really cool Frank Lloyd Wright looking house, which is apparently enormous because that city is inside of it. Yeah, that thing is awesome. Out of the whole comic book, one of the my takeaways was like, I just want to go there and check that city out. Yeah, it looked it looked pretty cool. It did make me wonder, especially because Ed Hannigan 
was an artist and started off by having to draw like Asgard and shit, which is no easy task. And so I was wondering if that was him saying like, oh, I have a lot of confidence in you, Herb. I know you'll do a great job with this. Or if it was him just being like, hey, you know what? I don't have to draw this. So yeah, and we'll make it extra complicated. It reminds me of my cousin, Andy. He used to work as a dishwasher when he was younger. And when he would go into the restaurant for his free meal, he would always get the French onion soup because it was the bowl that was the hardest for him to clean. And he knew he wouldn't be the person having to clean it. And so as I was reading it, I kept wondering, is this issue Ed Hannigan's version of ordering the French onion soup? I'd say that's, that's a distinct possibility. That was the impression that I got. There were a couple of needlessly complicated plot elements that were addressed in this, but that never really paid off in any way that I was anticipating. One of them is, we mentioned at last issue that there didn't really seem to be any reason to make the Nilfim, the bird-riding Air Force guys, parts of Harrison Turk. Mm-hmm. And this issue definitely confirms that they are, but also seems to forget that that was the case at times, and then at the end is like, oh yeah, they were part of it too, but never justifies why that was a necessary step. And I was also surprised to see that they had apparently brought them all along with them on their whole quest last issue, because that had not been apparent at any point. Yeah, a little bit of a gap there, for sure. And yeah, at one point, I think Shusha does mention that the four aspects of Harrison Turk all get combined into one. And then a few pages later, it's like, so I got the four Harrison Turks and the Nilfim riders? And I'm like, oh, man, why did you bother with that shit? Yeah, I think it's just one of those things that got away, got away from Hannigan. Yeah. One of the other things, too, was we see that at a certain point, Nighthawk mentions that he has this weird xenophobia that he doesn't generally experience coming over him, and he is uncharacteristically trepidatious. And the caption work mentions that Hellcat had mentioned that when they first arrived in this realm, too, and then nothing comes of it. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it was set up to be a plot point, and then, nah, Chekhov's gun is just filled with blanks. <laughs> Yeah, I was waiting for that to go somewhere, too, and when it didn't, I chalked it up to being the kind of psychological effect that was being exerted by the one who can't be named, as he was just sort of broadcasting his signal to either recruit and or fuck with people. Yeah, so maybe setting up a later story arc, because it does look like we are going to return to this this Voldemorty force later on, and I guess Steve's going to try to tackle that and figure out some shit. Mm -hmm. That is one of the takeaways that we seem to get from this is one that I was hoping for. It looks like for at least the immediate future, the defenders are going to be swapping out Steve for Clea, which I think is a pretty rad move. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, it may also circle back to Steve figuring things out. And really, the way that I read his exit at the end is just because he doesn't know how to answer what's going on. He flies off and just is like, Clea will explain. <laughs> <laughs> that is a very Steve move. Yeah, I agree. He has a couple of moments of that where he's like, 
Ooh, I don't want to deal with this. Goodbye. Mm -hmm. He kind of pulls that with Shusha earlier, where like Shush is saying, oh, Steve, so we can tackle this nameless guy now that you're here, right? Because my people are totally fucked. You've seen they've already been mind wiped. There's like three of us left that aren't evil. And Steve's response is, no, now's not a good time for me. And look, buddy, we're all in this together. My realm is threatened, too. I was like, Steve, we've just seen Earth. They don't know anything's wrong. They're fine for now. They might be threatened down the line, but you are not in the same boat as this knucklehead king. Yeah, the knucklehead king, to my mind, since he was sort of built up to be this amazingly powerful ruler seemed overly kind of jovial and accepting of everything Steve said. Yeah, he went along with it pretty well. It made me wonder if he is really all that powerful or if he has kind of a similar skill set to Steve. And so Steve is just like, wow, if he's powerful like I am, he must be the most powerful person in the universe. Because we see that Shush has an eye of Omenian or something, something that is clearly supposed to be establishing itself as an analog to the eye of Agamotto mm -hmm. that he is using to power his whole uh, magic Barba Papa house. So yeah, I think it would make sense that Steve would just be like, oh, well, if he's anything like me, and he appears to be slightly like me in one regard, so he is a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, there's a logic to that. That being said, Steve really doesn't do all that much in this issue. He mostly just says, like, well, I don't have enough power to disguise us all. I'm like, that seems like a pretty minor point. And for the past three issues, it's either been, well, I don't have enough power to do that, or, well, I have so much power that if I did this spell that I could totally do, then it would attract the attention of this guy whose name I can't say. How fucking lazy are you, Steve? You know, another thing he did that annoyed me in this issue was on page one, he's like, okay, everybody stay close to the ground. It's very dangerous. The subtext of which is absolutely no flying. And then on page two, he and Kyle are flying around carrying Clea. And then when Valkyrie's like, well, what if I fly? Then he's like, oh no, good idea. <laughs> they can't get us if we're flying. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, he is talking out of his fucking ass of Agamotto. One thing that made me very happy about this issue is that apparently we are fucking done with Lunatic with a K, because I was getting pretty sick of his shit. Yep. He was annoying. He does not actually show up in another Marvel comic until 1995. Wow. That's a long hiatus. It is. And what's weird is when they bring him back, he is written and drawn by Keith Giffen, who was the creator of the character. And he turns him into a hyper-violent interstellar bounty hunter, which is the same thing he did with the analog to that character that he created for DC in Lobo, which was really successful at the time. So I thought that was kind of an interesting things coming full circle move that happens later on. Is the, the second incarnation of Lunatic with a K also full of pop culture references? I'm not entirely sure about that. I haven't actually read the issues, just uh, read descriptions of them and was struck by certain similarities. I'm going to say 
Yes, but they're 90s pop culture references, which makes it infinitely more annoying to me. He just keeps saying, hey, now you're an all-star. Exactly. And saying things like, could I be anymore? Hitting you on the head with this metal pole. So frustrating. Mm. We see that Lunatic with a K's replacement as an antagonist for the Defenders shows up at the end of this issue. Fool Killer. Are you familiar with Fool Killer at all? Not at all, other than what I learned about him in the one panel in which he appears, which is that he is a just a, a real hypocrite. How so? Well, the first thing he says is, don't you dare judge me on my appearance. And also, I'm here to kill somebody because I disagree with their aesthetic choices. And that's Fool Killer in a nutshell. He kills people that he thinks are fools. Which is tempting in a certain <laughs> regard. Say so he, he does not suffer fools. Period. He is a character that was created by Steve Gerber and first appeared in Man-Thing. He was a, I believe, hypocritical preacher in his first incarnation. I'm not sure, actually, if this is the first fool killer or a later incarnation of the character. I know there were at least three or four people who have used that name in Marvel. And Gerber also did a mini-series, or maxi-series, perhaps, that was 12 issues, featuring a revamp of that character in the 90s that... At the time, I really liked. Uh, I've revisited it. Parts of it hold up, but also parts of it fall into some kind of murky waters, and I have some of the same problems that with it that I have with a lot of Gerber's writing, where he has a tendency to present controversial opinions without taking a clear stance on them in a way that I think he thinks is being objective but is sometimes just not recognizing his own implicit bias. That being said, it's a very interesting character, and I actually really love the character design and have never understood why he has the big floppy hat and seashell for a belt buckle, but I like him. Is that a seashell? I was trying to figure out. It looked like a little, like, maybe a dove sculpture? I'm pretty sure it's a seashell. It usually is drawn that way. And then around his neck, he's got some other kind of trinket. Yeah, um, I don't remember him having a necklace like that, but he might. He's got a lot going on. And then he's got like a red piece of silk that just follows him around? Or is that attached? I think that's attached. His power set is basically that he has a gun that disintegrates people. Mm. And he hands out business cards of people that he is about to kill, usually that I think say e pluribus unum on them, and sometimes say, live a poem or die a fool. What? Yeah, those are your options. I don't care for, for these options. Sorry. Yeah, what a weird character. He is a very weird character, and he is a very Steve Gerber character. And this era of the Defenders that we are entering into is dealing with a lot of Gerber's legacy. Because we've got Fool Killer in this one, and then in a few issues later, we're going to have the Defenders try to wrap up the Omega the Unknown storyline that had started in that comic book that Gerber had been writing. And it gets pretty interesting. Well, looking forward. Yeah, me too. I 
have always been a little bit curious, and I'm looking forward to rereading these, to what extent the inclusion of these characters and them dealing with all of this Gerber stuff, I think it happened right after he left the company, and I wonder to what extent it was maybe a little bit punitive. Hmm. Like, oh, well, you're not working for us anymore? Then fuck you. We'll do whatever we want with your toys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, could be. I think later on, I can't remember if it's part of this same thing, but they come back to Elf with a Gun, too. Ugh. Yeah. Man, speaking of things I would rather be done, Dollar Bill just doubles down on his douchebaggery. He's such a fucknut. Ugh. I'm definitely strongly on Team Ledge in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just have my only note on that is written down as uh, DB sucks. Mm-hmm. And he just does. He and Ledge are going through the apartment where Dollar Bill and Lunatic with a K live. Or I guess lived because Lunatic with a K don't live there anymore. And he keeps talking about what a great guy he is. And... I know that apparently the professor had some mesmeric abilities, which gets briefly referenced in the last issue and gets brought up here again, too, which makes a lot of sense with how everyone reacted to him. But he's not there anymore. His power has been broken. The professor Arizon Turk that he knew doesn't exist anymore, so he wouldn't be exerting that power. So now this is just dollar bill being like, well, I don't want to be wrong, so I'm going to assume that I was correct in that shit that I thought, even though nothing is compelling me to think that way anymore. Yep, that's very frustrating. The only redeeming thing about him in this issue is what I think, at least in my copy, is a coloration issue on page 27, where, I don't know if it looks this way in yours, but his chin is skin-colored, and so it just looks like he has, like, an enormous mustache. Ooh, let me check that out. It's the bottom right panel on 27. Oh, yeah. That's a pretty good look. That is a nice mustache. (laughs) Yeah, that is a full Crosby mustache. That is some Yosemite Sam shit going on there. Yep. All right. It does make me like him a little bit better. And I am curious still about that hamburger and pie tree that he has. Oh, I'm still firmly against it. I think it'll look great on Sinanigan's walls. Well, touche. Okay. I mean, we're going to need to deal with this guy if we want to raid his warehouse. And clearly he doesn't know the value of money. So I think we can get this stuff for a song. Maybe literally. (laughs) If that song is whiter shade of pale. (laughs) Yeah, boy, the Hulk does not care for Procol Harum. Apparently not, but I really liked the fact that Patsy was like, you know, Clea, what I think you're going to like? Procol Harum. And thinking about it, I'm like, you know what? Yeah, kind of like intellectual proto-prog rock. I can see that being big with the dark dimension. I think Clea would be pretty into that shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So good call on that, Patsy. Yeah. Talk to some of her friends about... You know, those guys that talked about getting high. (laughs) They were like, hey, you should check this record out. (laughs) No, seriously, Patsy, it's great. You're going to like this album so much more. Just put some of this powerful Jamaican incense in your brazier. 
and really feel the music. <laughs> the other thing that came up when uh, Dollar Bill and Ledger going through Turk's place is that, and I think this is just a throwaway line, but that Lunatic kept a scrapbook. Mm -hmm. I still hate Lunatic with a K and all of his shit. And the fact that Dollar Bill defends him having warm memories of beating people to death is ridiculous. But I do like that he was into scrapbooking. Yeah, he's a soft touch. <laughs> yeah. Ugh, that's Dollar Bill's words. This is the time that one reflection of me cracked Ledge's skull open and put him in the hospital. Write a little note under it so that I remember when it happened. Then paste in a little ribbon and maybe a sticker. Bad news. Well, was there anything else you wanted to touch on in the story? Are you ready to get into the minutia? I am ready to get into the minutia. All right, Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, what do you feel like starting with? Gosh, you want to just jump in at the top with uh, best and worst? Well, it's highly unusual, but okay. Who did you think was the best defender, and who was the worst offender? So, for best, I had Val, because I thought her performance was pretty awesome, and uh, she just demonstrated good bravery and going up and attacking Arison, the reassembled Arison Turk and was also instrumental in his capture by kicking him off the top of the mountain thing that he was on. Through the magic hoop? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had her as a really strong option. I actually decided to go with Nighthawk. He also did a very good job. He was my runner-up. But you're right. No, Val did great. And especially you said that it was very brave of her attacking Turk the way that she did especially after she saw him just push the Hulk aside like he was nothing, mm -hmm. to then go and bonk him on the head with her sword and show that, yeah, she was a force to be reckoned with, and she was the only one of the defenders that seemed to give him any trouble. As I said, I went with Nighthawk, uh, partly just the novelty of being able to have him as a legitimate option. He showed a lot of bravery in this issue, he finally decided to go deal with his fucking financial responsibilities, which I, I want to applaud him for, and he should be rewarded for that. You know, uh, what's a... Uh, Positive reinforcement? Yeah, try some treat-based training. <laughs> not going to roll up a financial times and whack him on the nose? No! <laughs> no, Kyle. We've tried that. It clearly isn't working. And yeah, he showed a lot of bravery, too. He was the one who said that he was feeling uncharacteristically freaked out and xenophobic and tackled that problem head on and still dealt with it and went and fought the knuckleheads who were under Voldemort's influence. And he was the guy who figured out a way to get them into the Frank Lloyd Wright house and just overall did a really nice job in this issue. Uh, also, strong runner-up for me was Patsy for introducing Clea to Procol Harum, and uh, I think correctly determining that that was something she would be into. <laughs> yeah, I I had Kyle as the runner-up. Also, I thought for sure when he flew into that little window, like something horrible was going to happen to him, but he just was able to let the guys into the kingdom. So 
Nice work. Yeah, agreed. Conversely, who did you have as the worst offender? So I intuitively, based on how he was acting, wanted to go with Steve. But the fact that he, along with Shush, made the spell that captured Eris and Turk made it such that I, I couldn't vote for him because he was instrumental to the team being safe and moving things forward. And regrettably, I had to give it to one of your runners-up, which was Patsy, because oh. she's great in the issue, but really the only somewhat useful thing she does that I can remember is drop-kicking the knucklehead on the head, which ends up hurting her, and then playing music, which, though cool, also pisses the Hulk off and makes him leave. Yeah, but I mean, it... it did make the Hulk think about himself and be a little bit maybe uncharacteristically introspective, which I think was another positive outcome of that. Oh, you think that was the... Yeah, that's true. That is like a really sad vibe kind of song. So it made him feel really emo. Yeah, and he was just like, Hulk feel oddly vulnerable. Mm. Hulk can't smash Hulk's feelings. Oh, that is frustrating. I know, I know. I did decide to go with Steve just for Shush basically being, so Steve, I'm kind of fucked here. And him going, yes, good luck with that. I'll maybe come back later. I've got some thinking to do. Bye. Yeah, yeah, that wasn't cool. Yeah, and then later bugging out and just being like, uh, Cleo will explain this. Bye. Mm-hmm. And yeah, as we had talked about too, him throughout this issue and the last either overplaying his magical ability or underplaying his magical ability so that he doesn't have to try to do shit. Seemed kind of shitty to me. Yeah, he and Shush made a couple of spells together, but I I maybe think that uh, Shusha was doing the heavy lifting there. Could be. What was your pie not made out of steel in this issue? What words did you like best? Much like you would like a pie, were it not made out of steel. I had two bits. One was just kind of a fun pun that Patsy made when she did the aforementioned front flip to drop kick on the knucklehead. And she says, Allie, oops, (laughs) because (laughs) she hurts her feet on his head. That was where the oops part came from. That's pretty good. That cracked me up. But the winner for me was a bit of exposition, of which... As you pointed out, there was a lot, but this one is on page 17. The narrator is describing what's happening as Eris and Turk is being reconstituted into one being. And the words are, And slowly the star chamber loses the quality we perceive as reality. Oh, that is nice. Uh, I was like, whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty good. The follow-up panel is, And how do I even know that what's blue to me is blue to you? We could conceivably just be all living inside of a whole cosmos that is an atom in the fingernail of a giant, man. And have you ever really looked at your hands, man? (laughs) Because if you do, you see that they're covered with eyeballs and running around (laughs) saying, (laughs) Aroo! Aroo! Yeah. Trippy. Yeah. That was pretty good. I decided to go with Zahooks's or Shush's or Shush's welcoming speech to our heroes because it was just really fun and I think set the tone for that character. As you said, the 
linguistic choices they made with him were inconsistent in a way that I found frustrating and sometimes hard to decipher. But when they first introduced it and I was like, oh, this is a hairy hand that talks like Yoda and is covered with eyeballs? And he seems kind of goofy and fun? I like this guy. And so when they first meet him, he says, Greetings, Doctor Strange and your companions. To this land, you welcome, I bid. Aroo, aroo. At your service, Zahooks I am. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really fucking fun. Yeah, me too. Aru Aru shows up on my notes a lot. It was pretty good. So speaking of Zahooks or Shush or Shusha, he is the inspiration for this week's Behold or Be Gone. So Corey, Behold or Be Gone, having a third eyeball. Now I know Zahooks has more than three, sometimes. Sometimes he looks like he just has three. Sometimes he's got at least five and a bunch on his back, too. But let's pare this down and just say an extra eyeball. You want that thing? Do I get to choose where it is? Or is it, like, just on my face? I would generally say forehead would be the default for that, but if you want to put it somewhere else, we can discuss that. Yeah, it seems like there are probably some advantages you could bring from that. Maybe financial, do some, like, uh, cult stuff. But I gotta say, like, being full transparency, I'm too self-conscious <laughs> to do that. If you like, everywhere I go, people just keep looking at this third eye. Yeah, I can see that being an issue. I think that the downsides are, obviously, as you mentioned, it would be novel, and that would bring its own difficulties. Hippies would probably keep bothering you and thinking you have wisdom, which I guess could be a plus or a minus, but I'd probably view that as more of a minus. Hat wearing would be difficult. It's got to cause some issues for that, both with irritation and with just placement. Although for me, that's not really an issue because right now hats aren't much of an option for me. Um, I can't really wear baseball hats because I grew a mustache recently. And if you wear a baseball hat when you have a mustache, you end up just kind of looking like a high school football coach. And that's, that's not what I'm going for. <laughs> uh. I tried the other day when I was mowing the lawn and I was just like, I feel like I should be calling people by their last name and clapping loudly and saying nice hustle. You should get a whistle. It would be nice to have a whistle. Like one of those lanyard whistle? Yeah, I know what kind of whistle a coach uses, Corey. I'm not going to try to coach football with a slide whistle. Although, that actually might be kind of fun. All right, maybe I'll, I'll start wearing a baseball hat after all. But that wasn't really as much of a factor in my thinking. So? So, it came down to a couple of positives for me. The possibility of trinocular vision seems pretty dope. I bet stuff looks neat that way. It'd also just be nice to have a spare eyeball. I mean, these things are fragile. It seems like a pretty good chance that something might go out of whack with one of them. And the thing that put it over the top for me is those cool sunglasses that Prince used to wear. Oh. Where there's the little extra lens on the forehead. Like, I wouldn't wear those right now because it feels performative. But if you have an opportunity to wear those and somebody like rolls their eyes at you and then you're like, oh, really? And then you take them off and you're like, look at that. 
I bet they'd feel pretty shitty, and then you could roll three of your eyes at them. I can see why this is up your alley. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, I just see you walking around Portland (laughs) wearing those sunglasses and then rolling your eyes at people. It probably never gets old. I don't think it would. So I am giving that one a firm behold. I am a begone. Okay. Corey, what was your favorite sound effect? This issue was pretty rich with sound effects. I'm going to go with a duo of sound effects from page six, which is clunk roo. <laughs> and that's uh, the noise of Nighthawk's feet landing on the head of one of the knuckleheads and uh, the knuckleheads response to that. I thought that was a pretty good one. I actually went with a different clunk. I went with the clunk of Valkyrie bonking a risen Turk on the head with the hilt of her sword. That also made the noise clunk, and I just hate that guy, and seeing him get bonked on the noodle was pretty satisfying. The other one that I wanted to mention was on page 22, and it is a newly recombined Turk hitting Nighthawk with his staff thing, which makes the noise kzitch. I had that one too, strangely enough. That was my backup. Well, it's a good one. It's a very electric sound. It's an electric sound, and it's very nicely drawn. The noise takes up most of the panel and kind of zigzags across it a little bit in a way that I thought was really fun. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion do you feel are most worthy of note in this issue? Man, there's actually, at first read, I only found one thing. And then after looking through, more things popped up. Yeah, I had a similar experience. Uh, Let's start with the first thing that jumped out at me. Uh, Shusha's band leader hat. Yeah, me too. It is a cool marching hat with a big feather in the front. And... It's neat looking, and I like that he made the effort because he was having guests over. It's just a cool look and really adds to the character design. We see that he is the only one of the knuckleheads that is wearing any clothes, which gives it kind of a Babar the Elephant type vibe that he went out of his way to wear a fancy hat. And I just really dug it. Yeah, the same. The uh, feather seems like it's affixed to the front of the hat with a kind of eyeball-looking thing. Mm-hmm. Or that may just be he's got another eyeball there. The guy's lousy with those things. I think that's an ornamental eyeball because it's it's round, and the rest of the eyeballs he has, he looks pretty high, actually. <laughs> like, they're not, his eyes aren't open very wide, and they're a little, a little red. That makes a lot of sense, actually. It's a weird realm, man. What are you going to do? Go out into your hedge maze and listen to some laughing bushes. Or some Procol Harum. (laughs) Good call. Mm -hmm. I also wanted to briefly touch on, we mentioned it earlier, but Fool Killer's outfit is pretty goddamn on point. I love that hat. I love the seashell. I love the thick cuffs on his swashbuckler boots. It's a great outfit. I like it a lot. You definitely need some confidence to pull it off, and he seems not to be short of that. No, he is not. 
One of the later things I noticed was, I think on page 17, that the reassembled Arison Turk, his gloves come up to, they're more like gauntlets, I guess. They come up to his elbows where they terminate. There's a lot of what looks like long leather fringe on them. And that is a fancy gauntlet look. Let me take a look at that. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> Man, I guess when you're the king of space in 1979, you get to have that kind of fringe on your gauntlets. That is nice looking. Pretty fancy. Yeah, I also did notice that when all of the lunatics and Professor Arisen Turk combine into the single Arisen Turk, all of their shitty little soul patches combine into one Van Dyke, which is, I think, a nice touch. <laughs> Anything else? On page 27, when Kyle's headed off to meet the lawyers and face the music, he's wearing this leather jacket that has an enormous popped collar. It's probably three or four inches tall. It's, uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I honestly wonder if that is a last-minute recoloring of Doctor Strange. Like, it is that severe that it is almost like Steve's Dracula collar there. Mm -hmm. It is very good, but it did make me wonder if it was maybe a, a miscue with the art department there. Yeah, it could be. Every issue of a Defenders comic book has at least one character who has to act in a way contrary to their previously established characterization or motivation in a way that furthers the plot. To paraphrase the Fat Boys from Crush Groove, they just gotta be a sucker. In this issue, who was your sucker? So, my sucker for this issue doesn't necessarily move the plot forward with his suckerdom, but. It was so unusual, I felt like calling it out. And we talked about it already, but after hearing the first few haunting strains of A Whiter Shade of Pale, Hulk becomes more, yeah, I guess, uh, in inwardly facing than uh, usual. We have seen him in the past kind of wander about and be like, either, you know, Hulk wants to be alone or Hulk wants friends. But this is the first time that I recall seeing him wrestle with that contradiction where he's sitting on this rock and he's just like, man, I don't want to be around these fuckers, but also it really sucks to be alone. Yeah, I think that's a good choice. I actually had the Hulk also for a different reason. I'm talking about on page 11, and it also is an instance that doesn't really move the plot forward in any real way, but it was very much, I thought, out of character that when Nighthawk sneaks inside of the house to let people in, and says, voila, no rain, come on in, gang. The Hulk says, golly, you don't have to tell me twice, nighty. This little kitty is drenched to the bone. <laughs> that seemed really out of character to me. I that mean, I get that they're in a different realm, uh, and everybody's acting a little bit off, but that just doesn't seem like the sort of thing he would normally say. It is a poorly placed word bubble. It, it also could be Clea. <laughs> it could be Clea, but it does look like it is very much directed at the Hulk. That, that is what he is saying. Yeah, I think it is probably just a misplaced word bubble. That is clearly supposed to be Patsy saying that. But it really does read like it is the Hulk. And it really cracked me up to think of the Hulk referring to himself as a little kitty who is drenched. 
I think it, it speaks to the deep admiration and affection he has for Patsy. He's just like, she, she talks that way. Yeah, he's trying to emulate his her speech patterns because uh, yeah, imitation, they say, is the most sincere form of flattery. Mm-hmm. Let's say you're talking to your friend Mike and, and you say to him, oh, my name's Mike and I'm a stupid idiot. And if he gets mad, you could just say, oh, they say that imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. Oh, jeez. That, and that, that helps? No. It helps me. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Mike's still pissed about it, though. <laughs> Poor Mike. But that's a, you know, fun tip that you can do at home. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I'll save that one. Just okay. for later. See, I'm a life coach, too. Maybe I should get that whistle. I think so. Baseball hat and a whistle. That's, that's what it takes. The tricky thing is with the uh, the baseball hat, can't be a Detroit Tigers hat because then it looks like you're trying to look like Magnum P.I. Mm-hmm. Although, I would rather he was my life coach. Yeah, I think it's fine if you don't wear a Hawaiian shirt. Or even if you do. Oh, just go full Magnum? Yeah, just go full Magnum. Yeah, give it a shot. Zeus, Apollo... <laughs> That's pretty good. Higgins? Uh-huh. Everybody forgets how whiny Magnum was. Sure. Like, that's a fundamental part of his character. Mm-hmm. He's a, he's a whiny, lazy P.I., and I like him. So, Corey, what was your favorite panel? I had a couple, but um, my clear favorite is page 23 in the top right. It's the one where Val comes down on some lightning and smashes a risen Turk with her sword and it makes the noise ba-boom. And it's just that full like Asgardian hero stuff going on. It's pretty majestic. That is really, really nice. Yeah, overall, the art in this issue is very good. There are, as I said, some places where it gets a little bit muddled, I think in large part due to the sheer volume of exposition. But when it's given room to breathe, it is very good artwork. My favorite panel is on page 16, and it is Shusha using his trinoculars. Mm. Uh, He's holding them up to three of his eyes, and it's, I think, the first time we see a close-up of his fancy marching band hat and it's just such a weird fun panel he's saying no i aru they you attacked many over to the enemy have gone aru aru enough come oh (laughs) seems like both enough and come are their own sentences so they shouldn't be out of order so I wonder what he's seeing through that thing. I don't know. I, I made note of the trinoculars also. It's a pretty cool device. Yeah, they are really, really neat looking. <laughs> and I agree, Shush. That is enough. Come. <laughs> <laughs> Some would say too much. Some might. Any other panels you wanted to mention? My backup was just Classic Hulk, page 7, Smashing. Um, knuckleheads flying just a classic hulk that one was pretty great i also did really like the transformation sequence of a risen turk getting uh captain planeted back into a single dude it's very 
psychedelic, but specifically late 70s, early 80s psychedelic in a way that really worked well, I thought. Mm-hmm. Now, Corey, we both know that the Hulk rules. But in this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? In this issue, the Hulk's rules were, as a uh, late 1980s Dre and Cube know quite well, it's important to express yourself. Ah. So get in touch with your feelings, you know, understand where they're coming from and let people know about them. Let people know how you feel. For example, monsters make Hulk confused. When Hulk's confused, Hulk gets mad. And when Hulk gets mad, Hulk smashes. So look out, monsters. Yeah, logical chain of events. Mm-hmm. Also, like, again, we said it before, but the, he's just not feeling uh, the pro call harem. That's true. Also important to note that in that song, I believe it is Ice Cube notes that he doesn't smoke weed or cess because it's known to give a brother brain damage. On brain damage on the mic, it don't manage nothing but making a sucker in you equal. Don't be another sequel. Express yourself. Exactly. That's what the Hulk is trying to say. Exactly. I mean, I think Dre and Cube have heard from their friends about getting high, (laughs) but the only high they like to get is doing flips in weightless gravity in another dimension. That doesn't necessarily sound like an anti-drug message now that I say it out loud. Nope. (laughs) I had the Hulk's rule being one that I think a lot of people are learning right now, which is, you know... Even introverts can benefit from occasional interactions. (laughs) (laughs) Which we see that the Hulk, when he is sitting alone outside after listening to the opening strains of Whiter Shade of Pale, says, Hulk never wanted to be a defender. Hulk just wanted to be left alone. So why does Hulk stay with defenders? And why does being alone hurt? Aww. Yep. And so from that, the Hulk learns that even introverts would benefit from occasional social interactions. But on the plus side, if you don't see anybody, you don't have to wear pants. Like ever. Mm. Good call. So, you know, it's a trade-off. Although I think the Hulk kind of likes wearing the torn purple jorts. Oh yeah, it's his thing. I wore some jorts the other day. Oh yeah? The white ones? Yeah, of course. They're my favorite jorts. Ah. It's just nice because it had, I like, I've just been wearing long jorts for so long. Mm -hmm. Whatever you call it when, you know, jorts have full pant legs on them. (laughs) So it's nice to wear my my short jorts for a change. Uh Yeah, I know. It's almost uh, time for me to get to work on uh, some outdoor repairs and stuff. I can bust out my construction jorts. I'm pretty excited about that. Nice. Mm -hmm. Who wears short jorts? We wear wear short jorts. (laughs) (laughs) I am changing mine. Now the Hulk's rules is who wears short jorts? Hulk wears jort shorts. Well, Corey, I have but one final question I must put to you. In the year of our Lord 1979 and the month of our Lord July, what Wong doings was Wong doing? So, to talk about what Wong was up to in July of 1979, we have to go back in time to his birthday six years earlier in 1973, when Doctor Strange had gotten him a really fancy telescope. 
And the reason for that was that coincided with the launch of Skylab, which was a United States space station that had been launched to do space studies and stuff. And uh, Wong, being the consummate uh, astronomy fan and general science buff that he is, was was really fascinated by this and just wouldn't stop talking about it. And Steve just like got him a uh, telescope, hoping it would distract him. And um, yeah, sure enough, Wong very regularly was was tracking the whereabouts of of Skylab and also taking in all kinds of other um, space stuff with his fancy telescope. He had it trained on Skylab in 79 because it actually had stopped working and basically got abandoned about a year after launching and was just left to float around. And he was pretty concerned that it was going to crash at some point and cause some sort of damage to possibly uh, people or buildings or something back on Earth. So he was pretty rigorously tracking it on a daily basis. And he, on uh, July 12, 1979, indeed had his telescope trained on it, was making some notes, finished taking his notes, and uh, went to go make a snack. Meanwhile, Steve comes walking down the hallway in the Sanctum Sanctimonious and is like, oh, it's the, it's the uh, telescope that I bought for Wong. Maybe I'll take a look. And Steve looks in there and sees the decaying Skylab and immediately gets freaked out thinking that it's um, some existential threat to the Earth and works up a quick spell and just blows the shit out of it. Oh, no. And is like, that's done. <laughs> and kind of does that thing with his hands and then uh, goes and takes a nap. It wasn't until much later that Wong even knew this happened. He just couldn't see Skylab anymore. And he's like, man, that's, I wonder where it went. So he was reading an issue of the San Francisco Examiner and saw that they had offered $10,000 to the first person who could arrive at their office with an authentic piece of the Skylab. And the winner just had 72 hours to get to America because it had actually crashed mostly in the Indian Ocean, but um, over parts of Western Australia, too. And the prize had been then claimed by a 17-year-old Stan Thornton from Esperance, Australia. And Wong just folded the newspaper and kind of shook his head. And um, Steve had never mentioned it, and Wong never thought to ask. It's just (laughs) going to be one of these mysteries. Wow. Yep. Well, astronomy was one of Wong's hobbies that occupied him in July of 1979. But it wasn't the only one. You see, Clea's newfound interest in Procol Harum had rekindled Wong's love of music, and that happened to coincide with the release of the first Sony Walkman, which I think he had maybe had something to do with the development of at one point, but I don't really remember. It's true. But he got a new Sony Walkman, was really happy to be able to listen to tapes while he walked around, and he didn't really have a ton of cassette tapes. Mostly he had been listening to stuff on vinyl. But he did have a few tapes, and they were of that time he had been sent undercover at Grateful Dead shows. (laughs) He attacked Bill Walton because he thought he was a Yeti. It was a whole thing. But he didn't have a lot of really clear memories of those. So when he listened to the tapes, it was like he was hearing them for the first time. And he got really into them. I mean, it may have been in conjunction with some use of strong Jamaican incense, but he decided he really wanted to start a jam band. (laughs) And so he he just kept rocking out in the sanctum and being like, Steve, you want in on this? And look, Wong excels in many, many fields, but acoustic guitar is not one of them. 
And he was working on Steve's last nerve. And so Steve thought that they needed to do something to try to scare Wong straight out of this jam band nonsense. (laughs) And so when he saw an ad in a paper for a Broadway production of something called But Never Jam Today, he just went ahead and assumed that that was a kind of a program that would teach people about the dangers of jam bands. So he and Wong went, and Wong had, as was his habit at the time, partaken of some strong Jamaican incense, and Steve had a little bit of a contact high, and they were both very surprised that this turned out to be a musical based on Alice in Wonderland. Now, Wong actually had a pretty good time at it, But Steve had run afoul of a hookah-smoking caterpillar in the past, (laughs) actually in the first issue of Doctor Strange, and he was not happy that this was the case, and also was frustrated that it looked like Wong might start up his jam band again. And so (laughs) Steve was just like, well, this is garbage. And so he cursed the production, and that's why after only eight performances but never jam today, stopped playing. Wow. And that is what Wong was probably up to in July of 1979. Just getting into his his jam band, probably called The Many Eyes of Agamotto, and uh, getting on Steve's nerves and watching a Broadway musical that it turned out was not a scared straight program for people who were thinking of starting jam bands. Man, too bad. I know. (laughs) That would be hilarious. That's a musical I would go see. I don't come down on Team Steve very often in these interactions, but I got to say I'm kind of on Steve's side here. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, thank you, Corey, for joining us. Sure. And thank you for joining us, listeners. This was a real treat. Uh, We'll be back next week to find out what those kooky Teen Titans are up to with all their shenanigans. And we'll be back in two weeks to talk about the Defenders and how they'll run up against Fool Killer. Will they live a poem or die a fool? Only time will tell. Or, I mean, you could go read the issue. It's been out for quite some time now. But, uh, you know, we'll cover it together and I think that'll be a nice time. If you would like to get into touch with us, there are a myriad of ways that you can do so. Foremost amongst them is you can write to us at our post office box. That's Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. Uh, as this is the future, we can also be contacted electronically. The address for that is ttwasteland at gmail.com. We are also up in many other facets of the interwebs. There's the Tumblr, the Twitter, uh, there's uh, Link'em'Up, you got your SeaCaptainsOnly.com, uh, Facebook, Grinder, which is apparently not a sandwich delivery app. Good to know. But uh, yeah, you know, just uh, if you look for us in an internet search, chances are you'll find us. And if you can't find us there, well... Why not look inside your heart? We'll be there. We've been there the whole time. Eating some ice cream. That's what we're doing in your heart right now. 
I know we're not supposed to eat it inside because it'll drip on the floor. And you got to, in your heart policy of you can only purchase concessions in the heart. You're not supposed to bring in outside food. But you know what? We snuck it in and we'll share it with you. And I think you'll be glad that we did. Uh, You're on your own, man. Keep going. (laughs) Nah, man, that's all. In addition to hard ice cream, (laughs) leaving us a review is a lovely way to show that you appreciate the show. That's true, Corey. Why don't you tell them how to leave a review? You can leave a review anywhere you are listening to this podcast, probably. That could be iTunes Music. Sure. That could be Stitcher. Yeah. That could be all kinds of places. Yeah, it could be Spain. Mm -hmm. You could be listening in Spain and leave a review. If you'd like to support the show monetarily, a great way to do that is to visit our Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. There are a lot of video reviews of comic books that I've been doing lately. I recently just posted one about my favorite comic book story arc that features a terrifying rabbit. Uh, that was a lot of fun to talk about. There's also the monthly Howard the Duck podcast that I host with my wife, Lisa. That one's called What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. And there's a bunch of other bonus material on there. Uh, A lot of it audio, some of it video. There's just a lot of stuff. So if you're looking for extra content, uh, if you donate, you get access to all of that. But mostly it's just a really nice way for you to let us know that you like the work that we're doing and would like us to be able to keep doing it. So thank you so much for that. Um, Yeah. And we will talk to you soon. Short shorts. Aroo! Aroo! (laughs) Shorts. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, bye. Bye. And they know it.